I want to invite everyone to open their Bibles to Psalm 56. Today we're beginning our series in emotions. You're here for about eight, maybe nine weeks. Uh, we're looking at our experience with emotions, and especially in a fallen world. And I don't want to give you eight or nine weeks as a therapy session, no. I, I want to look at these that we might take every thought captive Make it obedience to Christ. So, Psalm 56. There's a saying among people who live in Africa, especially missionaries, and it goes like this. Africa wins again. Living in Africa just has this way of pummeling you into defeat over and over and over again. And sometimes you just have to throw up your hands and say, I give in. Africa wins. Africa is too much. This happened to me a couple of times, and I remember one day in particular. So, me and my partner Kyle were uh, set to go out to a village by horseback, and in order to get there, we had to uh, go by car to another village as a starting point. And so we're set to meet our pastor friend. We're set to meet at his car at 9 o'clock. And of course, in Africa, if you say, let's meet or do something at 9 it never happens at 9, so I think we finally left about 10. Uh, we just saw him like he'd run from one building in the village to the other just trying to get everything ready. All right, so we left around 10, finally get to the village to get our horses. We get there about 11, and, and then to get our horses, we have to wait for the villagers to bring them. So we ended up waiting another hour uh, to get our horses, and so by the time 12 o'clock rolls around, okay, lunchtime, we set off. And right as we get out of the village, onto the trail, we see this big storm cloud coming over the mountaintop. And so you don't want to be caught in a lightning storm on top of a mountain. So we decide, let's turn back. Only by the time we got back to the village, we find that our friend's car has broken down and doesn't work. So uh, we're like, okay, it's okay, we'll call... Oh, uh, we're with Jim and Teresa Flora. We'll call them. Well, guess what? His phone doesn't work anymore. His battery has died. So we decide to walk up this other mountain to go to this shop to try to see if we can borrow one of their cell phones. Well, our pastor friend uh, is talking, trying to get, you know, trying to talk to people. And so after another hour, we find out we have to hitch the ride on the back of a bread truck. So think of like those 10 foot U-Hauls, you know, with the box, box on the back. Well, we pile in with about 15 other people, wall to wall, bread racks, you know, loaves of bread flying everywhere, driving with no windows, no way to see, hearing thunder over like some of the worst roads ever built in the world. We're just bumping, it feels like we're running over like people and donkeys and stuff. And we're crammed back there, it's musty, you know, all this, you know, human like heat is just trapped in there. Felt like we were a bunch of refugees, and so we finally made it back around 2 o'clock that day, and we just called it, Africa wins again. You win. Fear has a similar way of just pummeling us into defeat, often to the point where we just want to throw up our hands and say, okay, you win. You're too strong. You're too strong of an opponent for me. And so just think, of, of everything that causes fear, or everything that we're told to fear. Think of all these things. Uh, diseases, pandemics, right? It, and if not afraid of pandemics, then afraid of losing our freedoms because of the pandemic. 
politics and what's happening in, in politics, fear for our nation, fear over religious liberty, not being able to worship like we used to, fear about the future, fear of, of progressivism, fear of nationalism, fear of mass shootings, fear of the media, retirement, inflation, economic collapse. What's being taught in school curriculums, fear for our kids and our grandkids, fear of microchips and socialism, running out of toilet paper, what chicken sandwich we should buy, privacy, safety, our whole way of life. Like We're taught, taught to fear a million and one different things. The chicken sandwich thing was supposed to be funny. I, I was hoping for more laughs on that. You don't have to worry about which chicken sandwich to buy. I mean, obviously... Chick-fil-A, it does have the best chicken sandwich, no no matter what people say. There are a million and one things that cause us to fear, and it can pummel us into submission. And without even realizing it, we can let fear control us. That's probably why the most repeated command in all of Scripture is do not fear. Fear was the first reaction of Adam and Eve in the garden when they bit the fruit, and fear infects all of their descendants. But God did not give His people a spirit of fear and timidity, but a spirit of power, love, self-control. He gave us a spirit of, of hope, a spirit of peace. We, as God's people, if we really are in Christ, if we truly claim to follow Christ, we of all people should be the most hopeful even when we have every every reasonable conclusion to fear. Right? If all the scientific, philosophical, sociological evidence in the world said, be afraid, we still have every reason to hope. That's David's situation in Psalm 56. Right? In fact, by all accounts, he should be afraid. If you're in this situation, fear is the response. But David fights and he rests on three bedrock truths. Yes, it's a fight. Fear is a, an opponent. But these bedrock truths are absolutely necessary if we are to be a people characterized not by fear, but by hope. So let's read Psalm 56. To the choir master, according to the dove on far off turbans, a miktam of David, when the Philistines, Philistines seized him in Gath. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their crime will they escape? In wrath, cast down the peoples, O God. You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. In God, whose word I praise, In the Lord, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you. 
For you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. The first bedrock truth, the absolute sovereignty of God. Before we look at verse 1, look at what the psalm heading says. It says, to the choir master, according to the dove on far off terebinths, a mictam of David when the Philistines seized him in Gath. That heading is incredibly important for understanding this psalm. The first part of the psalm, right, is stating the tune, the dove on far off terebinths. And if you're a musician, you can try to imagine what that sounds like. We're not going to dwell on that. But the second part tells us when David wrote this or, or what he was writing about. And what does it say? When the Philistines seized him in Gath. So this is David praying this, writing this in hostile territory. The mountains that that border uh, Afghanistan and Pakistan is one of the most dangerous areas on the world in the world. So if you go to Google Maps and you click on a place, you can see a picture of anywhere in the world. Basically, you know, you want to look what it looks like from this mountaintop. You click on the mountain, you can see it. But on Google Maps, you can't see pictures here because there's so few because it's so dangerous. It's because this whole area is controlled by the Taliban. Right? This is where the plans to destroy the two towers was hatched, was in these mountains. And this is exactly the kind of place where David found himself, except in this case he was captured by the Taliban. That's why the psalm is called a, a miktam. It's, it's David calling out for deliverance. And it's, it's very bleak. For David. And, and fear is the controlling theme of this psalm. Twice, David repeats the refrain that we find in verse 3. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, and God I trust, I shall not be afraid. And I point this out because we often discount the humanity of the biblical characters. Like we almost picture them as if they weren't phased by anything. Ha! Defy you, Philistines. But here is David, and I think he's afraid. And I think he's, he's frightened with anger. It's, it, and so it's not a fun thing, right, to be caught in a severe thunderstorm. And I got caught in one and stayed up half the night literally shivering because I was scared how, was, how, how, how scared I was for my life. Literally shaking. It's not easy to trust God in those moments, right? That's exactly where David is. And you know what the was probably the same in, in both these situations, David's situation and mine? Is we're probably praying the same thing over and over and over again. I know, I was. Over and over and over again. And David probably prayed this over and over and over again, right? He's not like with the Philistines saying, like William Shakespeare, like, ah. Let me dip my quill. He's, he's, he's afraid and he's praying this over and over again. And so he's praying, be gracious to me, O God. Be gracious to me, O God. Be gracious to me, O God. For man tramples on me all day long. An attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long. For many attack me proudly. Right? He's, he's pouring out his soul to God. And so right in these first few verses, David is praying about and reminding himself that God is sovereign over the existence of his problems. 
God is sovereign over the existence of his problems. So, so very often, right, when we, when we act like, we act like problems, issues, setbacks, and failures, and all other troubles are stumbling blocks in our walk with God. Like we know, like in our minds, that, that trouble is going to come, persecutions, discouragements, all the stuff. We know this stuff is going to come, but when it does come, we act like, oh no, this is getting in the way of me walking with God. We know that He's in control of all things, but this problem seems to us to be a hindrance. When in reality, the very existence of the problem is due to the sovereignty of God. And it's there for your good no matter how you feel about it. The problems facing your kids, there by the sovereignty of God. The problems facing American freedoms, there by the sovereignty of God. The vision in our society, there by the sovereignty of God. The disease or the sickness that you can't get over that keeps coming back, allowed by the carefully designed sovereignty of God. This whole thing happened to David because God designed it to and David acknowledges that. But David David not only acknowledges God's sovereignty over the existence of the problem, but also His sovereignty over the extent of the problem. So David acknowledges God is not only sovereign over the problem's existence, but its extent. Look at verse 3. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? He repeats the same thing in verse 10. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? In other words, what can man do to me that my God will not allow? Your worst fears can do no more to you than God allows. Any inch it gains is due to God's sovereign care. The Philistines could not lay one hand on David apart from God's sovereign care. The Philistines were on a leash. Charles Spurgeon once said that, I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than God wishes. That every particle of spray that dashes against the steamboat has its orbit, as well as the sun in the heavens. That the chaff from the hand of the winnower is steered as the stars in their courses. The creeping of an insect over the rosebud is as much fixed as the march of the devastating pestilence. The fall of tree leaves from a poplar is fully ordained as the tumbling of an avalanche. The men who held David's life in their hands could do no more than God allowed. And the things that cause the most fear can do no more than God will allow. Take your rest in the absolute sovereignty of God. When I was in college, I went through a, a really 
prolonged season of, of doubting my salvation. And if ever there was a time that I was rocked with, with fear, it, it was then. I feared I was eternally doomed. But the one thing that brought me comfort might seem surprising. It was embracing the fact that even if God were to judge me, He would still be good. Because even God's judgments are good. So even if I were condemned and eternally doomed, God is is good in it. So the second bedrock truth we need is the absolute goodness of God. David cries out again in verse 5, All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts against me are for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their crime, will they escape? In wrath, cast down the peoples, O God. One significant aspect of God's goodness is His justice. David is appealing to God's justice. He's asking, will they get away with this? Like, are you the God of goodness and the God of justice? Let them get away with this evil? When Jeffrey Epstein, the the billionaire, right, who was caught trafficking children when he died in prison, many of his victims felt he had escaped justice. He didn't get the sentence that he rightly deserved. But we who know the wrath of God, who believe in the wrath of God, know better. It's good that God is a just God. Karen Pryor uh, as an author, and a, she's a professor at a Southern Baptist seminary, she once wrote that, I have no problem with the wrath of God. What good is a God who has no wrath over vile and wicked things? God is good. We want God to take note of injustice and insults and attack and to bring vindication. That's part of His goodness. Is that He's just. And yet, right, as we say this and we see David praying this prayer, we realize that we are caught in a world of tension. And this is because we're called to love our enemies as well as hope for God's justice. And so when we hope for God's justice, we do so always remembering that we are recipients recipients of grace because God's justice was directed toward Christ instead of us. So, we don't hope for God's justice in a vindictive sense, right? We don't pray do to them as they did to me because God didn't do to us what we deserve. No, we follow Christ who said, bless those who curse you and pray for those who mistreat you. Pray even for those who persecute you. That's what Jesus said. And and we rest knowing that any unresolved justice here will finally be resolved by our just God. We don't get back at our enemies. We commit them to God. And that can be very good for them or very terrifying. So, significant aspect of God's goodness is His justice, but the other significant aspect of His goodness is His grace. Look at verse 8. You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? 
Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. One of the things that separates Christianity from every other religion in the world, you could say a number of things, but one is that he's, God is personal. He's an infinite, all-sustaining, all-powerful, all-sufficient God, and yet He's all-tender, all-caring, and all-personal. Because of that storm that I was caught in in the wilderness, right, shivering, fearing for my life, I now kind of have like a newfound fear of lightning ever since. I can't seem to get over. And so last November I went hunting with Craig, and awesome, you know, weather in November is this big lightning storm that rolls in, and the last place that you want to be in a lightning storm is in a tree practically sitting in a lightning rod, because I'm in this deer stand made of metal. So I'm, I'm nervous. Man, I, I'm, I'm real nervous. Like, I do not want to get struck by lightning. But the truth is, and, and what I really had to remind myself, was that God cared about us, four guys, four dudes, sitting in trees in South Missouri. And that he cared deeply about each spot where the lightning struck. And he wasn't going to let it come any nearer or further than he wanted it to. He directs each lightning bolt. He keeps a record of sleepless nights. He holds a vial for your tears. He cares deeply about what you fear. The source of your fear may not go away but neither does God's unending personal and tender grace. In your fear, take rest in God's absolute goodness. Finally, the bedrock truth we need is the absolute faithfulness of God. David writes in verse 12, I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you. This right here is another reason, right, why, why I think that David wrote this while he was still captive, because let's have an English lesson for a moment. Everybody's ears perked up. Oh, English lesson. I love those. So, right, all that has happened up until now, right, is present tense. So, uh, all the verses. So, be gracious to me, present tense, for man tramples on me, present tense, all day long an attacker oppresses me, now my enemies trample on me, now for many attack me, now when I am afraid, now all day long they injure my cause, now like all their thoughts are evil against, against me for evil, they stir up strife, they lurk, they watch, right? All this is happening now, but all of a sudden in verse 12, he switches to the future. In particular, right, he's talking about a future, he's referencing an obedience he has yet to perform. In other words, David finds comfort in his own ongoing obedience. His own resolve to follow the Lord. So I believe that the faithfulness of God is found in obedience. Here's why that's important. Ongoing obedience is not a sign of how faithful we are, but a sign of how faithful God is. Psalm 119, in, in Psalm 119.87, the writer says, They almost wiped me from the earth, but I have not forsaken your precepts. 
this has always baffled me because I don't feel like I could have ever prayed this. Right? Like, I, I feel like I forget God's precepts all the time. But what the writer is saying is that this is a sign of God's faithfulness, faithfulness to him, not his own. These people, whoever they are, have nearly made an end to this psalmist, but he knows God is still faithful to him because to the farthest extent, God has not let him stumble. God has not let him forsake God. So our confidence for the future facing all the fears that we have right now, is the God who will keep us and who keeps us obedient to the farthest extent. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5, May God Himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The One who calls you is faithful and He will do it. Ongoing obedience is a sign of God's faithfulness. If you are exercising saving faith today, if you are living in obedience and striving to follow Christ, you owe it to the fact that it is God who is doing that in you. Right? We can't say to God, God, look at all I've ever done to you because any good we ever could do was God to begin with. You can't say, God, why'd you do this to me? I've been faithful to you. Well, sorry, son, that faith is mine that I've given to you all this time. So in the face of fear, we seek to keep walking in obedience because God's faithfulness is seen in our ongoing obedience. This is a a motivation, right? In In the face of fear to continue walking in obedience. We don't let fear cripple us. That's what fear wants to do. Fear wants to paralyze us, to keep us still, to keep from walking, to keep from pursuing, to keep from pushing, to keep from fighting. But this is a motivation to keep walking because God is faithful. God's faithfulness is seen not just in our ongoing obedience, but in His deliverance. Look at the last verse, verse 13. For you have delivered my soul from death, Yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. We've already talked about how David wrote this while he was still a captive. And and maybe he went and added this later. But I don't think he had to. I think the deliverance that he's talking about may not be deliverance from the Philistines. I think David is referencing to God's past deliverance. Right? God's past intervention because God has intervened and delivered David many times before. And so think of all the times and the ways that God has intervened in your life, right? Maybe times He's intervened to keep you alive. Intervened to convict you of sin. Intervene to speak to you through His Word. Intervene to give you brothers and sisters in Christ to encourage your obedience. God intervenes in us and for us countless ways. And so fear, if we give into it and let it control us, is to give in to the unbelief that God won't deliver us. That was the problem that plagued the Israelites, right? 
God had delivered them in numerous and miraculous ways, but when they saw the Egyptians coming after them at the Red Sea, they let fear take over and they panicked. And their sin was that they said, God's not going to deliver us. We're just brought out here to die. But the bedrock truth for us in God's faithfulness is in God's faithfulness in all the ways He has delivered us. And as God has acted in the past, so will He act in the future. Listen, if God has delivered you before, if He has intervened for you before, He will do it again. So we take rest in God's absolute faithfulness. But but listen, ultimately, God can deliver us a million times and a million ways in this life, but ultimately, amongst all the hundreds of ways that He has delivered us, the deepest deliverance happened in the Gospel. The the deepest and farthest extent that God has ever gone for us is in taking on His own holy self in the man Christ Jesus, our sin and separation and rebellion from Him and pouring it out completely on Him so that we can be set free and bear sin and wrath no more. And now God, ultimately our confidence is not in how good we are. Our confidence is not in how obedient we are. Our confidence doesn't even rest in all the other ways God has delivered us. Our confidence is that He is faithful to us because He was obedient for us. Listen, God is faithful to you because Christ was faithful for you. God is faithful to you because Christ was completely obedient on your behalf. That's our confidence in God's deliverance. And and He delivers us a hundred ways because of that. Will God be faithful to you? Yes, because of Christ. If you are in Christ, for God to be faithless to you, would be for Him to be faithless to Christ because you are now united to His Son. Now God is sovereign over you with the same care that He was sovereign over the life of His Son Jesus as He walked this earth. When God spoke, this is My beloved Son with whom I am well pleased in Christ, He speaks that over you. God is good to you in the same way He is good to Christ. And that's because Christ is yours and all that is Christ belongs to, to you and all that Christ did is credited to you. And this is true if you have repented and if you trust in Christ. The worst fear for you that you have in this world pales in comparison with the wrath of God. Christ is your refuge. So repent and believe today. So, we have many causes for fear. Some reasons might be really good but we have a refuge. And, and so we ask, we ask with David, what, 
what can man do to me? What can, what can the world do to me? What can Satan and hell and his minions do to me? The answer is nothing that our God will not allow and that He Himself has not already been through. Let's pray. Father God, it is true that the most often repeated command in Scripture is do not fear. Unfortunately for us, we are so prone to fear. And God, if not for Your grace, how often would we invoke Your wrath against us? But Father, You give us Your Word, You give us Your truth, You give us Your Spirit. And any command You give us, even the command, do not fear, You give us the grace to follow it. And Father, You not only give us the grace to obey, but Lord, You're not asking us to do anything that You Yourself haven't already done. You were seized. Lord, and, and David was delivered from the Philistines. You were seized in Christ. Torn and beaten. You were put to death. And yet You live again to give hope to fearful sinners. So Father, forgive us when, when fear controls us. Forgive us for when we give in to fear. And Father, give us the grace to take heart, to have hope, to have joy because You are sovereign, You are good, and You are faithful. Absolutely, utterly, completely, tenderly, good, faithful, and sovereign. So come what may in this world. The worst can happen. But we still have hope. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.